listening to the latest Poldark podcast. We are a weekly podcast dedicated to the hit show Poldark, as well as the novels the series is based on, all written by the wonderful Winston Graham. Uh, not only is the show on hiatus, they finished filming season three as well, so no more reports from the set. We hope the actors and crew are enjoying some well-deserved time off, but in the meanwhile, we suffer through a pole darkness that stretches out with no end in sight. Hint, hint, BBC and Mammoth, give us something to cling to, okay? (laughs) (laughs) But never fear, we'll do our best to keep your flagging spirits aloft with witty banter and snark. (laughs) We are currently in the midst of a Poldark Season 1 rewatch. This week's episode will be on episode 105, as well as our book club, where we're covering book 2, chapters 11 through 12, and book 3, chapters 1 through 3 of The Black Moon. So if you're ready to go, so are we. My name is Michelle. Um, I live in the States. Uh, You can find me on my blog at Tumblr, which is Poldark Muses. That's Poldark, M-M-M-U-S-E-S. And I tweet at Musings, M-M-M-U-S-I-N-G-S. My name is Rita. I live in the UK. I Tumblr at Princess of Poldark and tweet at Rita Bites. Hi, guys. My name is Delenda. I live in France. I blog at Britishly So on Tumblr, and I tweet at Delenda Dia. And I missed you guys. I wasn't there last week, but I'm here. We missed Yay, you, too. So <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> we missed you, too. Glad you're back. And happy birthday to Tumblr today. Apparently, Tumblr is 10 years old, so... Really? Where would we be without Tom? Oh my goodness. Well, we wouldn't be here, that's for sure. So, uh, anyhow, happy birthday, Tumblr. Yay. Even gonna... though this will be like a week old when it is. <laughs> a week older. Yeah. So, we're going to start with our episode summary. <sighs> Hope you've got something nice to drink and in a comfy seat because this could take a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, Our story begins with a montage of mining activities. Uh, We assume it's at leisure. Uh, Mark Daniel is chiseling away at rock, and there are young boys gathering up the fallen stones. Uh, Enters into the picture a young man on horseback. Ross, who's carrying buckets up to the surface, spots the man and smiles broadly. He dusts off his hands and greets this handsome, saluting young man. It's Captain Ennis. He proceeds to introduce his friend, we can assume that they are friends after the very manly hug they share, to the <laughs> to the Paul Zaki Mark crew, which is how he says he's like, it's always Paul Zaki Mark. So uh, it's the Paul Paul Zaki Mark crew uh, telling them that Dwight is the one that's responsible for patching him up during the war. Thank you, Dr. Ennis, for that sexy, sexy scar. Bless you. Doing the Lord's work there. <laughs> Amen. Uh, Dwight is in Cornwall to conduct a study of mind diseases. I know, sexy. <laughs> Dwight is taken to meet a very pregnant Demelza, who is, as usual, wandering the cliffs. <laughs> Twas you that mended his face. Your fame precedes you, sir. My infamy, you mean? Well, I intend to keep my head down here. I've no wish to become notorious. No. Notorious. Anyway, as they leave the cliffside, a bell is ringing. We've no idea if this is actually happening on the same day because 
Oh, look. Mm-hmm. Let's pretend it's the next day since Ross has changed his clothes. <laughs> it's like everybody else is in the same clothes, yeah. so it's so confusing. <laughs> anyway, they're walking towards a clump of trees in a field where a troupe of travelling actors have gathered to perform a play. Francis welcomes Ross and Demelza, complimenting them on being the picture of conjugal bliss, pulling Ross aside to advise him to enjoy it while he still can. Mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Commentary from the House of the Trenwith products? Yeah, not suspecting much is happening on the conjugal front there. Ouch. <laughs> Segway to Dr. Choke holding court with some of the elders, pontificating about his medical acumen, Purging, blistering, boiling. Ew, no effing thanks, you monster. Ruth Trenegalos looks like she's about to toss her syllabubs. <laughs> Choke doubts most of them could understand the complexities of medical science. This is, of course, just the place a newly arrived doctor who has yet to have been introduced should challenge the thoughts and expertise of a fellow man of medicine, isn't it? Few comprehend this mistress. Well, it's fees. I merely meant not everyone can afford expensive treatments. And sometimes does it not do better to work with nature's remedies? And you are? Dr. Dwight Annis. He's here to make a study of mind diseases. Well, he's come to the right place. Not if he cares to eat. <laughs> Choke continues with a baleful warning about miners and their inability to pay for services rendered. And with that, the battle lines for medical care in the county are drawn with a snooty glance. <laughs> Ross asks Francis about Grambler's prospects. Ever the cheerful, sarcastic wit, Francis parades out the circumstances. Mortgage to the hilt, running out of ore, and the prices for copper tumbling. This could mean challenging times for all of them. Maybe it's best to pick out the best hedge to live under, since that seems to be the way of it. Meanwhile, Mark Daniel is engaging in some manly man activity, beating all comers in arm wrestling, where he catches the eye of a beautiful dark-haired young woman, one of the players. Once the play begins, it appears she is speaking her lines to him, and Mark is falling ass over tea kettle for her. Demelza appears to be in some distress. When asked, he calls her his love, Squee! <laughs> she tells Ross she has a small ache and will stretch her legs. Verity follows her and they make their way to Nampira. That's a pretty long stretch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's no minor ache. Them's be labor pains. Verity charitably says she hates to see her cousin's pain. Demelza hits the bottle of brandy wine and they make their way upstairs. The play comes to an end and Mark is the first one to start clapping and rises to give them a standing ovation. All by himself. Mm-hmm. Fairly embarrassing. <laughs> Ross cheekily asks Mark if they should expect an announcement soon. When Dwight tells Ross he may have his own to make, light bulb moment as Ross pushes past the men and goes on his horse? I don't know. Wait, he and Demelza walk down to the play, so where did the horse come from? Mm-hmm. Never mind. Psst, Mammoth, we'd be happy to do some continuity work for you. Yes! At Poldark Podcast. <laughs> please, please, please. <laughs> We are treated to cross-cuts of Ross manfully galloping, with Demelza thrashing her head about on the pillow. Poor Bay. Someone get the epidural! Wait, sorry, no TARDIS, time machine, or circle of standing stones available. 
Ross races yeah. into the all-too-quiet house, his boots ringing against the flagstones, and comes to a skidding halt in the middle of the kitchen. He waits, whipping his head and his magnificent hair back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome for the earworm people. Until he hears the faint cry of a newborn, he springs forward and up the stairs. How did we make something so perfect? I am a feared Ross. That I love her too much. It will hurt so much more if things go amiss. I promise you, I will make the world a better place for her. I will be a better man for her sake. And for me. I'm already a better man because of you. Ross bundles his new daughter in a pretty shawl and stands out on the cliffs watching the sunset. It's one of the most beautiful shots from the series, such a tiny cooing baby held so close to her new father's chest. It's so beautiful, I won't ruin it by saying all we need is the circle of life to start playing in the background. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Sorry about it. Seriously. <laughs> Apologies to Anne Dodley, whose soundtrack is fantastic. Quick, someone order a fruit basket. On it! <laughs> Back to the program. Cut to Elizabeth reading a book when <clears throat> Francis comes with a note announcing the arrival of Ross and Amelza's daughter. She says she wishes them well, but her reaction is a mirror of what Ross's was when Geoffrey Charles' arrival was announced. Suck it up, buttercup. He's married and happy. Leave him alone. But of course you won't. Cut to a pretty sunrise, and Demelza sitting in the parlor embroidering Julia on a yellow ribbon. Elizabeth arrives for a visit. Demelza assumes she's there to see Ross, obviously, but that is not the case. That's very pretty. Oh, it's just a fancy I had to make her a keepsake. No, she's not made of gold or silver, or even copper. It's made of something more precious. A mother's love for her child surpasses all other loves, does it not? Mmm. Demelza rightly imagines Ross wouldn't like that idea. Elizabeth begrudgingly agrees, but adds that men do not understand such things. Mmm. Perhaps another foreshadowing comment for events that unfold in episode 210? Mm-hmm. Smash cut to the church in Seoul, where Julia Grace Poldark is baptized. We then go to Nampara, where the baptism reception is in full sway. Demelza is distressed, as she wanted to have two separate parties, one for Ross's gentry folks, and another for Demelza's lower-class folks. Ruth and John Trenaglas are there, more's the pity. Ruth looks like she's dressed to go to an effing ball and is full of crude, <laughs> condescending comments about Ross having to lower his standards in his guests, you know, now that he's married his kitchen maid. Hey, Ruth, we get it. He turned you down and married Demelza. <laughs> Get the fuck over it already. Praise. <laughs> Ross is hitting the wine again, just as Francis comes up to offer more snarky banter about new fatherhood. Getting much sleep, Ross. I have no complaints. Oh, child changes everything. So does owning a mind. Neither can be ignored. Not just one tries. <laughs> My wife is perfection, is she not? God knows what I've done to deserve her. 
Ross doesn't say anything, but the look on his face clearly shows his appreciation for Elizabeth's fair patrician beauty. As Verity leaves, <laughs> or as Francis leaves, Verity arrives and notes the direction of her cousin's extended gaze. They're very different. Yes. Yet each has something the other lacks. Perhaps you'd like them both. <laughs> Perhaps I would. Verity <clears throat> can barely conceal her disgust for what he's just said. Hashtag Verity is us. And moments later, Ross seems to realize the same thing and goes off somewhere, hopefully to dump some icy water down his velvet trousers. Yeah, crass muffin flumper. Trademark. Ah, uh, some fresh air might help. Yes! Ross is joined by Dwight outside in the front yard of the house, sipping brandy and musing about life. I envy you. My charmed life. Is it not charmed? Is it not comfort and... Purpose? Certainty? This is Cornwall, Dwight. Nothing is certain. Funny you should say that, Ross, because Henshaw approaches you to tell you Toke sold his shares in Wheel Leisure, and guess who to? George, of course, who suddenly appears on our screens. When did he show up for the festivities, and who invited him? He raises his glass to Ross's prosperity. George acknowledges his new shares and says it must be considered a compliment. Ross is all smiles and winks until George goes back to the house. Donaza is in the kitchen, where it appears she's just fed little Julia. Verity comes in, clearly emotional and upset about Andrew. Donaza expresses her wish for Verity to have this joy too. Honestly, not helping one tiny bit at the moment, Donaza. As Verity leaves, clearly on the brink of tears, Donaza, Judd and Pretty are alerted to the arrival of some very, very unwelcomed guests, at least from Demelza's point of view, her father and stepmother. Ross greets them in the yard and welcomes them in. Ross's crew follows. They are to back up their boys. Mr. Khan is his new and improved jerk of a self. <laughs> his time pouring forth judgments and methody blather rather than blows, at least for the moment. Demelza looks worried and horrified by her father's behavior, but surrendered her daughter to Ross's care to show him his new granddaughter and introduce him to the rest of his friends. Again, Mr. Khan can't seem to wait to refuse the polite introductions and focuses his attention on Ruth Trenaglos's breasts. I mean, her attire. Mm -hmm. Cover yourself, Missy. Your place is to be decent and modest, not laying out wares for men to slaver over. Ruth entreats her husband to defend her honour. Clearly uncertain, but forced to nonetheless, John does so, at which point Ross steps in to dissuade violence. Despite Khan's apparent willingness to toss off bonds of methody life to revisit his earlier days of arsekickery, <laughs> Ross extends an apology on behalf of his father-in-law, which Ruth accepts, but not before tossing in one more not-so-subtle dig at Demelza's origins. You know, those big hats are very good at hiding, throwing shade when needed. As the Methody folks leave, under Ross, Zaki, and Mark's supervision, Karen, the actress from The Traveling Players, walks towards the house. Apparently, Mark is just as surprised to see her as Ross and Zaki are. I thought the players had moved on. They had. She did tell me she'd return. I never thought she would. I must catch her when I can. I mean to. 
Karen. Like a lamb to the slaughter. <laughs> I thought the players? Slaughter. Ross goes back in to let Demelza and the rest of the family know the Carnes have left. When Demelza asks why they came, Ross tells her he'd invited them. Uh, secret keeping from your wife already, Ross? Of course you are. Yeah, in any event, when Demelza says they came to shame and disgrace her, both Ross and Dwight state they failed and it will all be forgotten within a week. Demelza, on the other hand, won't forget this very soon. Meanwhile, Mark and Karen have a chat where she tells him she must leave because there's nothing to keep her here. So he proposes. What? <laughs> Ross tells Demelza Mark must find Karen a home in a week in order for her to marry him. They run through their options. The cottage in Melon is a wreck. Ross says they both love one another, or so she says, and Mark's libido decrees. <laughs> so Demelza states they should marry, even if, even if obstacles stand in their way. She flicks a pointed glance at Verity, who scampers away. Ross picks <laughs> up on this thread and gives it a tug. On the contrary, some obstacles cannot be overcome, and should not for the peace of all concerned. Demelza, on the other hand, appears to be pondering a bit of rebellion. This can end well. Smash cut to Trenwith, because why not? Where Francis <laughs> and Elizabeth stare up at Charles's portrait, which is a pretty good one, actually. They both think he would have enjoyed the day. Francis going on to describe him as a great patriarch and leader of men. A difficult thing to live up to. And can you not? It was a question, not a judgment. Ouch, just kick him in the balls next time. <laughs> she tried. <laughs> Meanwhile, Verity stands at the cliffs looking at the sketch Andrew drew for her. It's not even a good sketch, Verity. No. And it, it like, it's like a twig ship. And in a lovely shot, we see Verity returning home to Trenwith, where Francis Elizabeth on Agatha and Geoffrey Charles interact in the beautiful candlelit splendour of their parlour. Francis making yet another excuse to leave, Elizabeth looking disappointed, Agatha asleep, and Verity doing her needlework. This is the life she has to look forward to, and it's a sad one. The next day, we guess, Ross is heading <laughs> out to raise more capital to buy shares from dissatisfied investors. Demels is sitting by the fire, rocking the baby, and welcomes his farewell kiss. But as, as her eyes follow him as he leaves... She prepares to go out on a journey of her own to return before five. Ross encounters poor folk on the road, gives them some coin, and meets Dwight in the Red Lion. They discuss the riots happening in town and bitch about falling copper prices. There is a dude sitting near them who seems to be eavesdropping. Meanwhile, Demelza arrives at a home in town and is led into the sitting room. We don't know whose home it is. Yes, we do. But we'll find out soon enough. Cut back to the Red Lion, where Ross gives Dwight a lesson in Copper Economy 101. <laughs> they sell cheap. The smelting companies don't bid against one another, so the prices for copper remain low. Ross surmises if the mines were to do the same, withhold or to drive up the price from a company where they could smelt their own. Well, remember the dude eavesdropping? I couldn't help but overhear. You intend to form a smelting company? I intend nothing, sir. I merely say that were the mines to unite and create a company, one that would bid, buy, refine, 
sell their own products, they might keep the profit for themselves instead of handing it to the Warlegans. Ross and Dwight leave. Noisy dude is clearly blown away by the genius of this plan. Now, if only someone were to organize something like that. Oh, but that's just another scene. <laughs> Demelza can no longer wait and prepares to leave when Andrew Blamey comes through the door. As soon as she introduces herself, he asks if Verity sent her. Nope, she's all on her own to do this one. Blamey says he never thinks of Verity now since he was told in no uncertain terms, including a bullet in the hand, that the romance <laughs> must cease. Demelza leaves feeling as if she's failed. Ross goes to visit Pasco, and the option available for him for more capital is to raise a mortgage on Nampara. Ross returns home to find Demelza just where he left them. He wonders if she's feeling confined. <laughs> <Lowell. laughs> oh. Funny. Judd announces Mark Daniels had called for him. He goes to investigate and finds Paul Zaki Martin, because they are one person now, mm -hmm. building what looks like a cottage in slapdash style. Looks like you're making progress. No sleep for four nights. And you're set on this girl, Mark. You barely know her. Maybe so, Ross. But truly, she's my heart's desire. I hope she deserves you. Ross strips off his coat to lend a hand. The day of bare-chested physical labours are over. After all, he's a married man now. <laughs> and it's like October, probably. Yeah, so pretty like, much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to the wedding! Yay! The couple and their guests make their way across the field towards the new cottage, and Karen is not very impressed with it as well as the village folks behind her. More dancing takes place, Ross approaches Dwight to tell him he's found a house for him, Mingus Cottage, which apparently is nearby the Daniels' new home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Karen wastes no time in coming over to introduce herself to the fine young doctor and insists that they dance. Flustered, Dwight agrees, just as they hit the dance. Yard. Mark approaches <laughs> Ross to ask for more work at the mine, because his new wife has needs beyond his current income. Ross does everything he can to not smile and say, I told you so, but there's no additional work until they see how they fare, I'm sorry, in the auction on the morrow. In one of our favorite scenes, Ross gives Demelza the 411 on their personal financial situation. So there you have it. The copper auction's tomorrow. As usual, the price will be fixed by the smelting companies, and, and I have no means to buy out our shareholders without risking all we have. This house, our land, our very livelihood. You must be regretting your marriage to such a destitute rogue. Must I? After what you brought me to? Am I now such a great lady as to forget where I'd be if we'd never met? <laughs> what? Women. None are created equal. Some are never satisfied. Some could never be brought so low. And others thumb the nose at adversity and roll up their sleeves. Oh, perhaps you wish you'd married a rich lady. I'm quite aware of my good fortune, I assure you. Foreshadow, you get the idea. 
In sharp contrast, the conversation at Trenwith is a festival of defensive snark. We must hope for a good price. Then we know we shan't get it. And unless the price goes sky high, Paul will have to stop pawning the family jewels. Francis. Perhaps someone will make a bid for Mama. Ease up on the snippy attitude, Francis. She's trying, which is more than I can say for you. And yes, folks, I actually just said something positive about Elizabeth Poldark. What? I know. I mean, it's the bare minimum. minimum I, 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 like, I, yeah, yeah. She's, she, she's existing. <laughs> Congrats. Um, the auction arrives, and it sucks. Prices <laughs> abysmal, and there's much grousing afterwards. Francis tells Ross he's bothered by how boring Ross is since he's become a father, so he's got him an invite to the ultimate house party. Honestly, it's a turn of phrase that makes me think we're take we're talking about some really bad nineties hip hop movie. Before we before we can go further, the dude that was eavesdropping on Ross and Dwight earlier asked the two to join a gathering near the fire. Super secret pinky swear time. The smelting company idea that was bouncing around seems to be nearing fruition. Francis is shocked to discover Ross was the first to come up with it and is the person they wish to lead it. Oh. Francis is concerned and can't join because of his financial situation. You know, the Will Huggins thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, the invitation to the party has arrived at Nampara and Demelza is very excited about it. She walks the cliffs with her daughter, telling Julia that her mother's a lady and her father's a gent, almost as if she's trying to convince herself. Until Andrew Blaney leaps out at her because apparently he wants to talk to her. Jesus, dude, for a convicted murderer, you really need to rethink your approach. <laughs> Zacky runs into Ross on his way back from the auction, and Ross has a new job for him. He goes on to explain there are are several men who bank with Satan, I mean the Warleggins, and should George and Carrie find out, they will take their toys and go home. Except toys mean crippling debt notes hanging over the heads of their friends who at one point put their trust in them. And going home means calling the debts in and sending all of their now former friends to debtor's prison or worse. Except they won't hand out the guns. They draw the line on that. Those men... Ross will keep their identities secret. Ross, on the other hand, can be all out in the open with his scorn and nose-thumbing. Nothing horrible could come from that now, could it? I don't see a problem. Nah. Blamey apologizes for being such a dick to a person who is actually wishing to help. Acknowledges he still loves Verity and asks if there is still hope. He, once again, gets really insistent about getting answers now. Like, do calm down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Demelza says her husband can't find out she's staring up the embers of this thing and that she'll be in touch. Now go chill the F out, dude. You're freaking out the natives. <laughs> she scurries down the road and meets up with Ross riding up from his meeting. He looks suspicious as if he knows, as if he knows she's been up to something. She shares the invitation, a gleeful smile on her face. Inviting us to Georgia Elegant's party? <laughs> I'm not glad. Not make up for the christening. Now I'll show that I can wear fine clothes and behave all genteel along with the best of them. That you will not. 
Way to be a buskill, Ross. He explains to her that it's a card and business party and she'd be bored. But at least she will be spared the ordeal. <gasps> Cut to Demelza sitting at the writing desk in the library, staring at the invitation. She picks up a quill and pens a letter to Captain Blamey. The game's afoot. Oh, wrong show. Yeah. The next day, week, who knows, year, and <laughs> Ross is packing up his papers, surprised to see Demelza in her cloak. She tells him she's going to town because she needs a new click. Yeah. Confusing. Mm -hmm. And Verity is to help her choose. Ross will escort them to town and he hopes the choosing of cloaks is the least of her worries. Yeah, no. <laughs> Smash cut to Francis and Margaret where he is placing what appears to be a very expensive ruby brooch around her neck. What follows is a glimpse into Francis's insecurities, both with his wife as well as being the man to live up to his late father. He declares he will never be that man, which is okay since he was a massive tool. Mm -hmm. But you could be a better man, like, right now. You're not doing yourself any favours, dude. Yeah. Next, we see Ross and Demelza arriving at Treadwith. While Demelza goes off in search of Verity, Ross and Elizabeth exchange a few words. Are you joining this urgent trip to the dressmakers? Because shopping and dressing up are the only things of matter to us women? Not at all. They are, of course. But I hesitate to buy ribbons when our copper can scarce be given away. Besides, Francis has more urgent calls on his purse. Such as? Gaming, entertaining. Oh, himself, not his wife, nor his workers. They're not remotely entertained. Though I dare say she is, lavishly. Elizabeth, I wish... There was something you could do? Oh, I wish it too, Ross. But we are beyond wishing, are we not? Clip. Are you joining? Are we not? Girl, you really needed to take your own damn advice. Ross and the two ladies head towards town and come upon some rather scary, hungry-looking mindfolk who don't appear too pleased to see the gentlefolks either. Verity is frightened, but Demelza says she's seen it before. Empty bellies make for such looks. You know, there's been an awful lot of talk about starving folks and, and riots. You don't think. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ross and his magnificent season one mane of hair has arrived at Cardew, and he enters the pink parlor where several folks are playing cards. Dwight is there and is pretty shocked and horrified that George has attained such wealth over the course of two generations, while folks like Ross and Francis struggle. We have different ways of doing business. Nice. Tidy way of putting things, Ross. George sits like a king, holding out his glass to be filled without paying any heed to the servant doing the task. Mm -hmm. And Francis, well, Francis looks like he's having a very bad day at the card table. Ross approaches Margaret, who sports her new necklace and looks very pretty, to ask who Francis is losing to. Ah, the infamous Matthew Sanson, mill owner and corn merchant. Does his infamy extend beyond bankrupting Francis? It extends almost everywhere, and he has George's endorsement, which makes him a force to be reckoned with. A man of means, though, sadly not of generosity. Is that collar not a gift of his? No, indeed. The giver was a man of taste. She promptly saunters over to Francis's side and places her hand on his shoulder. Meanwhile, Demelza is at the haberdashery. 
Flipping through fabrics, Verity wants to go somewhere else, but is implored to stay put. Two seconds later, the voice of Andrew Blaney rings out in the shop, and Verity looks like she's about to faint. George swaggers over to Dwight to make polite conversation. Pray, what do you prescribe for boredom? It's not a condition I'm familiar with, sir. Doubtless you will have opportunities to study it. I suspect not, sir. The patients I attend rarely suffer from that affliction. Oh, burn, George. Mm -hmm. Burn. Hey, at least he's got a doctor there to, you know, maybe tend to it. But, you know. (laughs) To be honest, it sounded like he was trying to pick him up. So confusing. (laughs) Margaret leaves Francis aside and expresses her sadness that Francis doesn't share his cousin's skill cards and other things that was mean Uh poor francis damn that man cannot catch a break once he's (laughs) once he's ruined ross suggests margaret will be finished with him as well as his wife did long ago she responds she asks ross if he regrets his choice in wife ross of course regrets nothing come the day you know where to find me you was always my weakness, my lord. Ross does his best not to smile. Epic fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Back at the dressmakers, Demelza plays along as if this is a chance meeting um, and is introduced to Blamey by Verity. Blamey does everything he possibly can to control Verity to join him for coffee, cordial, tea, or me. Yet she refuses <laughs> and walks out of the shop and into the street. Back at Cardew, the end is nigh for Francis. Ross stalks over to the table to inquire about the stakes. George, attempting to appear sympathetic, declines to say. Sanson, the man Francis is losing to, receives a message and leaves the table. Francis refuses Ross's assistance to rise from the table and walks out of the room. Verity, near hysterical and walking blindly through the streets, tells Demelza nothing good can come from hearing Blaney out. Just then, angry, starving miners come charging around the corner. Demelza shields Verity from the throng as they run past until a hand grabs her arm. Cut back to Cardio, where Dwight and Ross are heading towards the door. Will you believe me if I say it gives me no pleasure to see Francis beggar himself? Business is business. It's not my business to bankrupt a friend. So you leave it to a third party and your conscience is clear. I thank you for your hospitality. The boys stride out the door, leaving George staring after them. And you wonder why Ross doesn't want to have a thing to do with you, dude? Back! At the riot, Blamey escorts the two ladies into an alcove for safety, where he begs Verity to hear him out. Verity runs away from him like a scared fawn, right out into the middle of starving minor traffic again. (laughs) (laughs) She'd learn. So he runs after her, leaving Demelza to watch the melee as Sanson's corn market. Families are running off with bags of corn. Sanson screams. <laughs> the bushels are 15 shillings and not a penny less. As if they care. Dude, they're rioting. He, they're not paying shit. It's not like they're queuing up at the cash box. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, bless him. All these years I thought of none but you, hugging, waiting, in the hope that one day... I cannot bear it, Andrew. Are we to endure it all again? The parting and the heartache. No, not the parting. I swear to you, never the parting. So romantic. Mm -hmm. Demelza decides it's time to leave, so she runs across the street, nearly grabs them by the scruff of their necks, and they flee out of harm's way. Go, Demelza. Uh, back at Trenwith, Elizabeth and Jeffrey Charles observe a butterfly on a windowsill overlooking the drive. It's a lovely shot of the two of them. And as Elizabeth opens the window to let the creature fly free, she sees Re Francis riding up and none too spiritedly. Can I interject? As somebody who has a fear of butterflies, that shit scared the crap out of me. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I know it's supposed to be like symbolic but all i was thinking was oh my god just just get that thing away from you Elizabeth. <laughs> oh my gosh i would have had the same same response if it had been a spider i would have just been out the out the door but uh anyhow okay so two butterfly phobic people one not so much um <laughs> Let's see, on the road back towards home, Demelza chatters on about not finding anything to suit her at the dressmakers. Ross apologizes that they had a wasted journey. I wouldn't say that. Uh, when he asks if they heard about the rioting, Demelza shrugs it off. After all, they were too busy in the fabrics and all. She suggests that Verity accompany her next week to try their luck again. Who, Verity says she can absolutely spare time to go with her. Uh-huh. <laughs> Back at Nimpara, Ross remarks on how Verity appeared to be in high spirits. I'm not glad. She deserves to be content. She should make the most of it. Why? Her life's about to change. And not for the better. Ominous music as we go back to Trinwith, where Verity comes bubbling in with news from town. Agatha and Elizabeth appear to be shell-shocked, while Francis stands emotionless at the fire. Agatha speaks of it being old before she was born and recounts the mind's history, all before a very confused Verity. For months now, you know that Grampa has been failing. She means Francis has been failing. We could no longer afford the repayments on the loans. Thanks to his profligacy and mismanagement. So in an attempt to recoup these losses, Francis today staked... Gambled. The mine. Mm. On a game of cards. He lost. Over at Nampara, Ross runs down the list of things that will have to change for them. Loss of income, pride, family inheritance for Francis and Geoffrey Charles. A sharp decline in their standard of living for Elizabeth and Verity. The Leggins can tighten their grip on their other mines in the area. And for the people who work there, unimaginable hardship. So often I've envied Elizabeth. Why? Why did you envy Francis? Demelza wins our epic side eye of the week award for this one. Mm-hmm. 
The next day, week, whatever, Elizabeth heads out the door on her way to Grambler. It's the day of the closure, and Francis implores her not to come. What I did was unforgivable. But, but my love for you, my love will, will always. Dude, you said your love for her was undying when you gave her that out before you married. And now you're going to trot out that stale old chestnut after your philandering and gambling has lost the mind that has been in your family for generations, this is the one moment where I believe we can all stand with Elizabeth and say, not today, Satan, not today. Uh, Francis does have the decency to look completely beaten. Aww. So, at 12 noon, Francis stands at Grambler delivering a speech that rings hollow to everyone there. Especially since since he's standing there wearing a ridiculously expensive <laughs> fur top hat, he rings the mail bell and with a piece of chalk <clears throat> writes the word Ristorigam on its post and walks off. Elizabeth soon follows him. Ross taking a look at Elizabeth heading up the hill looks at Demelza as if he's asking her permission. That's <laughs> slapping slap hand. hand. Slapping hand. Slapping hand. Itchy. Itchy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a slight nod and he speed walks after Elizabeth and asks her what he can do not once has Francis asked me that question he's afraid to you must know this is never what he intended for you and yet it is how it is and we shall weather it retrench, make economies there are many worse off than we But Francis feels sorry for himself. I will not do so. Clip. Not once has Francis asked me that question. I will not do so. Why do I still not like her? <laughs> Demelza joins her husband as Elizabeth departs and they observe Dwight getting flirty looks and attention from all of the young ladies. Dr. Ennis! Dr. Ennis! <laughs> Ridiculous. Ross, <laughs> Ross muses that he'll need to watch his step. When Demelza mentions his good looks and bachelor ways, he has the nerve to look a little jealous. Sometimes. <laughs> you were right. The world is a harder place now, thanks to Julia. The stakes are higher. The loss was more painful. Yet I would not change places with him. My life is more precious for being less certain and richer for being poorer. What does it mean, Resurgam? I shall rise again. Shall we? I hope so. The end. The episode ends. Ooh, holy, holding hands. Holy it's crap. So cool. <laughs> 
the amount of content they were able to cram into 58 minutes is simply astonishing. Uh, and in all honesty, it makes me wonder how they managed to leave so much content on the table when they had two additional episodes in season two. So let's talk about this episode. What was everyone's favorite scenes? Um, my favorite scenes. Yeah, I have several favorite scenes. So the first one is when Ro- um, Julia is born and Ross is holding her. And um, because usually um, the Ross scenes are generally the ones that I prefer because he doesn't mm-hmm. get to speak. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so this scene uh, in particular, Julia, holding Julia um, is my favorite. I could watch it for like an hour because uh, it is such a soothing atmosphere and uh, the tenderness, the vulnerability and um, simply the love swoon. And uh, also, uh, I loved uh, the scene uh, with Ross and Demelza sitting at their dining table. And uh, when uh, Ross uh, says, uh, women, none are created equal, some are never satisfied, some could never be brought solo, and others thumb their nose at at adversity and roll up their sleeves. I was like, yeah, sometimes you're a good man, Ross. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. That's that's one of my favorites as well. Uh, we see the love and companionship the two of them have developed during the course of their marriage. Um, I also love the scene where he's racing home to get to Demelza after the play, even though Darkie is all of a sudden there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the slide across the kitchen floor was cut from the BBC from the the PBS broadcast. What? Um, yeah, um, it was one of the things that was cut in order to to. Uh, make it shorter so they could throw the ads that they had at the the top of the episode. Um, so when I finally saw the UK version, I was completely charmed by it. Um, and then, of course, you know, how did we make something so perfect? I think I thought that that was just such a sweet line, such a sweet line. Um, my favorite scene, probably like of the se- the entire first season, is when they're like walking to chat not church like back from church did they get married in church anyway they're walking (laughs) over that hill after the wedding and they're talking about how nobody likes karen and they're like oh they like me they make allowances for you (laughs) and demel's like yanks on his arm and ross can barely hook you from smirking (laughs) i was like oh my fucking god they're the cutest thing you've ever seen yeah so good I like little moments like that because you can really see the chemistry between the actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really love the shot of Ross actually holding Julia mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Um, it almost makes him look like a fairly reasonable dad. Yeah. <laughs> really impressed. He and the sunset. Oh. Yeah. That sunset, I think, is the same sunset from um, when it's like probably shot on the same day where Demelza tells Verity that she's pregnant. Pregnant. Mm, Yeah. It's it's almost exactly the same. Yeah. And I was like, it kind of works that it's the same sunset Mm -hmm. because you think like that's the first time you hear about her and then like you're seeing her. It's so beautiful. And I liked the episode ending. I really like them when they stand on cliffs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just in general, (laughs) it's a good time. Yeah. And I was so like, this is gonna sound really weird, but any time that Francis was being a dick, 
I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I loved his level of sass. Like, I kind of forgot how sassy he was. Mm-hmm. It's something I appreciate. Like, he he's not bright, but it's, like, always kind of funny. Like, he's so bitter and drunk. <laughs> exactly. It's entertaining to me. It's like, oh, my God, dude. Lighten up, Francis. <laughs> Which is actually a line from one of my other favorite movies, uh, Stripes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. So, uh, Dr. Ennis, uh, how did you react to Cornwall's dreamiest doctor? And has your opinion changed? I am ashamed to admit that I wasn't that <laughs> into Dwight at first sight. <laughs> He was kind of just like a random extra to me during mm-hmm. season one. Like, I thought he was super hot, but he didn't really become my boyfriend until <laughs> further into the book series. <laughs> I think uh, meeting Caroline really helped. Oh, yeah. I think season two was like the real introduction to Dwight as a character because he became more fully developed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mostly in this episode, I was just like, ooh, he's hot. <laughs> <laughs> that was about it. Yeah. yeah, and I think I all agree. the Cornish ladies will agree with us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, because when we were first introduced to him, uh, my first thought was, uh, please don't make this guy a womanizer. I mean, he's cute and he's a doctor, <laughs> so everybody's going to come up with an excuse. Uh, I'm saying, could you like check up on me when you can? <laughs> that kind of does happen. It does. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so when uh, we were also introduced to Karen, um, she started making hard eyes on him. I was like, okay. Some bad shit is going to happen. And I knew he was going to bring trouble. And especially with uh, the guy, um, I always forget his name, uh, Mark. Mark, Mark Daniel. Daniel. Yeah. yeah. Karen's uh, husband, you mean? Yeah. From the very first scene, like even before uh, he sensed that the, there was going to, there was something happening between the two of them, we could see that he was not particularly keen on uh, Dwight. And um, so, yeah, I knew that Dwight was going to be trouble. Uh, um, in, uh, in Cornwall and, uh, <laughs> and yeah, and he also reminds me of this type of characters that, you know, they're good people, but they're eventually going to do some bad and disappointing stuff. Mm-hmm. I agree with you both. Um, and, you know, really like the fact that he became a more multidimensional character in uh, season two. Um, you know, and, you know, he was cute. But he got became Doctor Sexy uh, in season two, uh, and, you know. And now we've got Sam and Drake showing up. You know, there's there is some serious competition for Mister Turner yeah. on the Poldark set. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so the more the merrier. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, the more the merrier. <laughs> um, I also think like it really helps that his hair was floppier in season two because I'm all about that. I'm all about the flop. Okay. Um, we talk about the real important stuff here. Of course. <laughs> so, let's assume that we did not know about the death of Julia when we were first watching the show. What was your initial reaction to her birth, and has rewatching in light of that changed how you see the scenes? Oh God, uh, it's it's really excruciating now because <clears throat> yes, I had no idea uh, what was going to happen. Um, uh, at the end of, of season one, and so when when it did happen, um, I was I was just a, a Terry Crite mess, and I know we'll we'll get to talking about um, the that episode uh, in just a few weeks, but uh, 
the the scene of Ross carrying that tiny coffin on his shoulder. Um, it's something that I still can't watch without crying. Um, it's it's beautiful and terrible at the same time. My favorite scenes are actually the most painful ones. Like mm-hmm. this scene is my favorite uh, Aiden Turner, well slash Ross Paul Dark scene because I mean he doesn't get to speak, but all the emotions that he manages to uh, to convey and the the music in the background. Oh. I mean, yeah, <sighs> it's just it's devastating. Um, you know, even seeing the scene, um, you know, I mentioned a few moments ago, you know, where, you know, she's, she's born and, and he says, you know, how do we make something so perfect? Um, you know, it, it now has a tinge of grief. Uh, this was the first time I've watched the episode since uh, season two. And when you think about the contrast between their uninhibited joy at Julia's creation, the pregnancy and delivery with Jeremy's, um, yeah, it, just that too. Yeah, it's just it. Yeah, the the parallel is there, and it's just it just breaks my heart. It just breaks my it's heart. It's really heartbreaking for Jeremy because mm-hmm. the the fact that it's just sort of it's blown over a bit in the series. Like it's like a couple of shots. Yeah. Oh yeah, and Jeremy's born, and that's it. Yeah. But that's kind of how it was in the books as well. There mm-hmm. wasn't. It wasn't like the center of their lives mm-hmm. as much as um, Julia yeah. was, yeah. and it's just that's so formative for Jeremy. Mm-hmm. It really yeah. is. Um, but I have a completely different experience because I knew she was going to die when I watched this episode. Mm. So I have a rule when I watch period dramas, mm-hmm. and that is: do not get attached to the children. <laughs> you do not. <laughs> The mortality rate being what it was, uh, it's just I just I just can't get attached. Yeah. So um, that's a good rule to have. <laughs> it's think about all of the TV shows, <laughs> and I'm like, good, do not get attached. But you can't really help it because Julia was really cute. Mm-hmm. Damn it, Julia! Why couldn't you love? Exactly. Um. So Demelza playing matchmaker for Verity and Blamey, was she right to intervene? Because hmm. I'm usually an advocate for staying out of people's businesses. Sorry to sound like Ross Paldock here, <laughs> but it's um, but in this case, it's pretty obvious to me that without Demelza, I think these two people would have ended up miserable and alone. Mm-hmm. They would not have done anything. Yeah. Uh, Ross's attitude about it kind of boggles my mind because he is always getting involved in other people's affairs. Like, literally. Remember, Ginny? Remember, Jim? They wouldn't have got married without you, Ross. <laughs> like, he's literally, like, intervening in this episode. Mm. So the fact that he's like, let's just stay out of it. It's not our business. is strange. Mm. Um, yeah, I... move to Melza. I'm a fan. Yeah, I think that, that, that Ross's hesitance to get involved in Verity Blamey Round 2. and Do we have a shipping name for them? I could not Let's think see. of what it was. Verity. Verity. <laughs> that would work. Um, Blamey. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that, that he really hesitated in getting involved with, with the second time around for those two was, was the fact that he was really there to witness what happened the first time he agreed to support them. You know, the, the duel and, you know, everything that, that wound up happening. You know, Demelza was there for the aftermath, of course. But Ross saw everything happen firsthand. You know, his cousin Francis was nearly killed on his property 
with dueling pistols that belong to Ross's family. Uh, you know, Wouldn't I'm, that involve Ross actually learning from his past mistakes, though? I know. I, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to give the man a little bit of credit. You know, when okay. when it happens. Fair enough. Um, but you know, he, he, yeah, he wouldn't want a repeat of the same uh, situation. You know, especially with Francis being the head of the family. Now, you know, obviously Francis is not the complete and utter chode that his father was with regards to, um, you know, in, in how he conducted himself. But uh, he was just as opposed to the the entire situation uh, as his father was. Um you know, I think. Plus, now he he's like recovering from getting shot by the dude. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that you know, if Demelza had felt more assured in her position as mistress of Nampara and more of an equal to her husband, um, she probably could have argued the point a bit better than flicking side eyes and making massive passive aggressive statements about the whole thing. Yeah, me too. I um, I agree with you both. With both of you, when uh, you say that, uh, yeah, we should stay uh, out of um, people, other people's business. But uh, Demelza saw how heartbroken Verity was, and uh, she also knew that Verity uh, she was ready to resign herself to being the governess of Trenwith, and we saw how that went in this episode. Basically, needlework, you know, tending to uh, the servants when they're ill, whatever. And um, so, yeah, even if I don't condone all the strings that she pulled, like, uh, for instance, when she um, pretended to, um, I think she was pretend pretending to be Verity at some point, writing the letters, wasn't she? Yeah, well, at I'm least sure. she, um, she was the, uh, she passed the letters, like, she was the, um, she was the male person. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, so I can only admire her for wanting uh, Verity's happiness. But of course, we all knew from the beginning that this would lead to some bad shit happening with Ross, and we saw that at the end of episode uh, seven, how angry he was. So, Karen ate nothing but trouble, uh, and in the books, uh, she had a fairly tragic backstory and fleshed out character. Do you think the TV adaptation would have been better if they'd fleshed her out more? Uh, now, again, my memory is getting terrible in my old age. R.I.P. me. <laughs> but if I remember it correctly, I mean, she was an orphan. She'd never had a home. She'd struggled and taught herself how to read and write so she could make a better life for herself and build a home. Because, you know, that's her one thing she wanted in life. And when she marries Mark, she's hugely disappointed in the realities of being a miner's wife. She feels isolated and lonely in the community that is unwelcoming to outsiders. And she's mostly stuck indoors most days because she doesn't know anybody and she doesn't know the area. And the the cottage is crappy, like, come on. While her husband is gone, she may... It's like sometimes 18-hour days, that's how long the mining days were. And there were odd times during the day, so... The bitch is just bored. She's lonely and desperate and bored. So, so she's like looking for trouble. But I think you can sort of see the reasoning to why she's looking for trouble far better than in the show. Where I think she's mostly played as some kind of nympho <laughs> who is just like crazy. Because she's like trolling for, <laughs> for guys at her own wedding. And I think there's a little bit more substance and subtlety to her character in the books, at least. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I went back to skim through her character's introduction, and I seriously mean skim. I was, like, flipping the pages pretty quick. Uh, was it, wasn't really able to find the backstory that you mentioned, although it is kind of ringing bells, you know, my old age. I mean, because seriously. <laughs> Come on, guys. Y- y'all are, are spring chickens. <laughs> <laughs> compared to this old, old you tell my brain that I can't remember this but um you know i i think karen's complete disregard of the women in the county compared to the men uh, did nothing to endear her to the folks in the area uh, and this uh, is a snippet from the wedding procession uh that's uh written in the the books uh let's see karen was not sure how to take it all how far she could unbend towards the people she was coming to live among. She took a dislike to old Granny Daniel, and she thought Beth Daniel, Paul's wife, a plain drudge who couldn't open her mouth because of jealousy. But some of the men seemed nice enough and ready to be friendly in a rough but respectful way. She looked up at them out of the corners of her eyes and let them see they were more acceptable to their, than their women folk. So yeah, that's that's not really helping her make friends amongst the the, the women folk in the the area where she's living. Because you know she's clearly saying, yeah, you know, you guys are okay. Your your wives and girlfriends kind of suck, but I'll hang out with you. Which yeah, that's not going to go over well with these. Never trust a woman who doesn't have female friends. No, <laughs> never. That is a life rule. Uh, um, true that but yeah we're gonna see more of her in the upcoming episode mm-hmm. i will have more to say on this subject okay. because i have karen feelings you have karen um, <laughs> i know i am a weirdo let's just go <laughs> should we get on to uh, messages yeah 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 let's do that uh we got a message from evil edie that's a cute name uh i just watched episode 15 of the podcast and loved it as always. Uh, during the podcast, you talked about making a series discussing the 70s TV show. Personally, I would love to see your thoughts on that adaptation. I was shocked by how many of the changes it made, and it would be great to see your reactions as well. <laughs> I can't wait for episode 16 of the podcast. So many beautiful Romelza moments in uh, 104. My heart just can't take it. Hard eyes! Uh, thank you for all the hard work or all of the work you put into making quality analysis of Poldark. Thank you very thank much you. Uh, for mm-hmm. the, the wonderful compliments. We we really appreciate your support. Uh, and, you know, you're not kidding. There is a there's a quite a bit of work that goes into to putting these on. But, you know, the three of us really enjoy it uh, so much to be able to, to talk with with fellow fans about, you know, our, our love of this uh beautiful show and, and series um i would love to do some podcasts on the 70s adaptation uh, i think the three of us have figured out how we can watch watch them uh <laughs> there's a part of me that thinks it might be fun for us to do a live podcast as we're watching it <laughs> so that you can see so that the responses can be recorded as they're happening kind of a mystery science theater 3000 version of poldark uh, so, you know, we'll have to ponder that, uh, but whatever format we choose, you can count on us doing it, uh, you know, maybe after we finish the Series 1 rewatch. Ladies, what do you think? That sounds amazing. Yay! <laughs> My live it. reaction would be like... <laughs> um. I think that would be probably pretty hysterical. 
<laughs> I wish I'd recorded like my reaction to the first time I watched the first episode because I was doing a lot of snarking in the Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. So yeah. But yeah, I think um, I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, down for it. <laughs> well, we'll figure out how to how to make that work, and and we'll give you an update as as soon as we we figure it out. So stay tuned, and thanks again. Yay. Okay, so new message from Amanda Poldark. <clears throat> Rewatching Francis dealing with Charles' death made me realize this was the beginning of his slide towards what would result in his suicide attempt at the end of episode 201. Although Charles was no longer there to nag him, he still had to live in the shadow of his legacy. Well, he was kind of a douchebag, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a really kind way of putting it. Uh, Charles Poldark was... <laughs> Charles Poldark was really uh, a pretty reprehensible character, uh, and you know I I have zero love uh, for him at all. But I think um, yeah I I think that that um, it is very difficult for Francis to come to terms with who he is supposed to be as a man after growing up under under Charles's shadow. I think it was almost easier for Francis to live under Charles's shadow the way that he did because he always had somebody to blame. If he wasn't quite happy enough or if something wasn't going well in his life, then he had this horrible figure he could say, oh, well, it's because of him. And after Charles's death and all the responsibility for his own life and the running of the estate falls on him, he has to start looking a lot more inwards and I think that's where the self-loathing begins for him. He suddenly starts to realize that he's internalized a lot of Charles's remarks and he doesn't really like himself. He's become somebody he doesn't like and um, that's the downward spiral for me. That's but a great observation. I think also, like, like I was saying earlier, I kind of enjoy watching the, these scenes <laughs> as... Um, I enjoy it a lot more after watching season two. Mm -hmm. um, there's some great acting being done by Kyle as ever, but you sort of appreciate the nuances there. There's a lot more self-loathing in his sort of bitter remarks than I really appreciated the first time I was watching it. And also, Amanda, you said that uh, he had to live, uh, he still had to live in the shadow of uh, his father's legacy, but there's also the uh, Ross factor, I think, to um, take yeah. into account because uh, he was constantly uh, reminded of how uh, um, you know inferior he was uh, compared to Ross, like how he should do it more like Ross, you know, be more like him, you know. So I think uh, that was also um, hard on him and also contributed uh, to him um, and his low um, self-esteem. Mm -hmm. That was really obvious in the mm. the Conmore Cobba company meeting mm. when they all suggested that Ross should be the leader you can yeah. sort of see him going oh of course Ross is the leader yeah. Oh, yeah bless him um, all roads leads to the kitchen asked I love the way you coordinate your closing podcast song with the episode and often find myself laughing appreciatively at your pick. How do you choose the song you're going to use? Uh, thank you so That's much. That's the mastery of Rita. 
Mm-hmm. I really, really, really love picking up the song credits. Like half the time, um, the song would just pop into my head halfway through editing the podcast. Like divine inspiration. I think I have a really weird and very specific skill set. <laughs> really strange um the other half of the time i will beg delinda and michelle and they sometimes help um but it's pretty easy i think because there's a song for almost every situation um but one final thing we've started a podark podcast spotify playlist yay (laughs) all of the credit songs we have chosen are going on that playlist and it's going to be an eclectic mix for sure Um, we'll tweet out the links, so be sure to subscribe to it. Oh my god, please. Let me know, let me um, know. I mean, your your selection for last week, Pony, wasn't was it good? so perfect. <laughs> so perfect. Um, I was like, I, it needs to be a 90s R&B song about sex. Bang. And then when I found, so I went through my playlist for that, and then when I found Pony, I was like, this is weirdly apt for Ross. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, uh, Rita is the genius behind the 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 songs, uh, and uh, it's it's oftentimes a surprise to us as well. <laughs> she won't tell us what it is, um, and then we'll listen to it, and then we we hear it. And I'm usually in the car when I'm listening to the the podcast, and invariably I will just start howling with laughter. As soon as it comes on, so <laughs> yeah. So make sure that you listen to the ends. The ends. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, our last message uh, comes from anonymous. Uh, Hi, Michelle. I was wondering if season three is covering Black Moon and half of uh, Four Swans. I wonder will they'll finish episode nine, especially if heaven forbid they don't do a season four. Oh my God! Don't even say that. Don't even say that. Don't say that. Don't say that. Um, no. it's, yeah, yeah. I have no idea. Where I need it break. to go to Angry Tide. Oh my gosh! They have to do Angry Tide. Um, you know, I have no idea where they're going to break up the books. Um, it's been a while since I read Four Swans, mainly because I was so enraged after I finished it. I just I couldn't even look at it. Uh, after that but uh there i'm not sure there's a natural break point for it in the middle of the book uh however given some of the casting decisions and rap announcements that have happened and i'm purposefully being cagey in my answer here you know if you want to investigate what i'm talking about you know the go and find it because you'll see it uh, you know, they could very easily be mixing up some of the chronolo- uh, chronological um, things that, that happen within the, the stories. You know, for example, the riot that they had at the end of season two, um, there is a, a section in the book for Black Moon that, you know, really could have been part of that conversation uh, that they had at the end of, of series two, but you know, ah, who knows, they may wind up doing another one of these again in the, the filming. But, uh, you know, I'll be able to comment more on this once we get into reading Four Swans. Uh, but ladies, what are some of your thoughts on the, the subject? Um, I can't remember Four Swans well enough. Like once we read the book club, maybe that can be one of the questions. Where do we think it will finish 
Um, but I haven't been following the filming as closely as some others. Like, I think because previous season I did follow the spoilers obsessively because I was like, it's been a year and a half, I need photos. <laughs> this year I'm trying to sort of be more low-key about it. But yeah, um, I just, I can't really say. I don't feel informed enough to give you an answer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and uh, I haven't read um, Four Swans yet, so can't really um, elaborate on that. But um, just uh, based on the promo that we got for uh, Series Three, we had a glimpse um, of I think his name is Hugh Armitage, right? And uh, I don't know, I haven't finished um, Black Moon, but I don't know if we will uh, get to uh, will if we will be introduced to him. Well. His name. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, he was on the list. Yeah, I noticed yeah. that. But uh, I wondered if uh, we would get a glimpse of him, or if it would be more uh, in Force Ones. So, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't think that we need to worry too much about uh, a season four because uh, I think we can all agree on the fact that Paul Dark is uh, one of BBC's major um, shows at the moment. So I'm pretty sure they will get a season four. Please, sweet Jesus, okay. please, 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 please. <laughs> or will lose me jealous. We, we, we do don't get him season um. four. <laughs> Please. Well, the thing that we have to worry about over here uh, in the States is whether or not uh, we're going to have PBS, PBS going yeah. forward. Oh, because, right. you know, the, 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 that was the like orange... That was like the second the... day of, his, of, his, of Trump's presidency. He tweeted about <laughs> like he was going to cut PBS completely. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, not this. Yeah. Not this thing. Yeah. And, and and it's and it is no joke. It is no joke that Orange One has the uh Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is the uh parent uh organization for PBS uh, across the country, uh clearly in his sights. And so there there is a grave concern uh about it. And the the, the sad thing is I don't want to get too much into politics uh here on the, the podcast, but the, the amount of money that is uh, paid by the, the government for to support the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, you know, is I think f- a half a billion dollars, which, you know, the, the budget is slated to, to spend four trillion dollars. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a drop in the bucket, but I'm not going to get too much further into that. Um, but we just I'm, want PBS to fund our show. That's all we want. Yeah, honestly, just- honestly. But you know, if yeah. if God forbid something like that were to happen, you know, the, the, the... I'm sure that that they could find fundings elsewhere because uh, I was thinking they just did a deal with Netflix yeah. to get the show on Netflix, yeah. and Netflix are very good about um, they'll fund half of the show and still allow it to trans yeah. transmit yeah. on the BBC. Yeah, so we can start a letter writing campaign yeah. if worst comes to worst. Yeah. So anyhow. Okay, that's enough of that. Um, um, we need to do a spoiler warning. Oh, yes, yeah, spoiler warning, because we're getting ready to do the book club. So uh, for those of you that want to uh, remain spoiler-free for the content from Black Moon, Black Moon and Four Swans, now is the time to turn us off. Uh, you might want to just like fast-forward a bit until you get towards the end so that you can you can be sure to hear the the end song because you know they're they are always awesome they are good yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh but uh, anyhow we will uh 
talk to you guys soon. I think we're going to be taking a break uh, next week. So uh, there will be a, a, a week where we skip uh, our podcast uh, publication. But you know, we will be back uh, to continue on with our uh, analysis and glowy, snarky goodness for Poldark. So we'll, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Um, so now it's time for the book club. Book club. Yay. See, we are continuing our discussion of The Black Moon, book two, chapters six through eight, and book three, chapters one through three. Okay, so first question. Describe this week's reading assignment in eight words or less. All roads leads to the kitchen says, George Willoggin is a punk-ass bitch. And I say George and Elizabeth Warlegan are reprehensible muffin flumpers. Trademark. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I, I would tattoo that on my body. Yeah, <laughs> true fact. I wouldn't, ta- I wouldn't tattoo it, but you know, I would definitely <laughs> have a bumper sticker. Really, like sharpie tattoos that well, wash off in okay. like six weeks. Okay. Um, <laughs> second question. New characters. Who is your favorite new character introduced to the Poldark saga in the Black Moon, book one, chapter 11 to 12, and book two, chapters one to five, that you found intriguing? Why? And are your previous faves still your faves? How was their character grown? All Road Leads to the Kitchen again said, Drake is still my favorite, and while he's not a favorite, I'm intrigued by Tholly and would love to see him on screen, especially in the scene where he heads a trend with with Frost to be a peaceful bodyguard. <laughs> yes, please. Yes. Yes. Um, BPAC67 <clears throat> said... Tholly was briefly introduced earlier in Black Moon, but in Chapter 6, his character is fleshed out a bit more. We get more of a backstory about him, how he lost his arm, Tholly's connection with Ross and Ross's father, Joshua. Joshua? (laughs) Enjoyed uh, how he and Demelza were trying to size each other up. (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) And um, Drake and Morwenna are still my favorites. The secret meetings and Rowena being increasingly guided by her feelings and emotions over expectations and logic, although she's wrestling with those two sides of the coin. Also loved Drake's cheekiness in putting Todd's, Todd's in the pond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, I love hearing more about Tholly, uh, mm. and uh, I know that they have cast that part, so I'm looking forward to, to seeing... <laughs> to seeing that character um, come to life on screen. Uh, Demelza, God, she's so smart. She's so smart mm. and sharp. Uh, and the, the scene where the two of them are kind of trying to figure each other out is, is one of my favorites. And Ross, you know, I know that you're helping your friend, but you both need horses, not ponies. <laughs> I mean, it, every time I see the word ponies, I'm picturing both Ross and Demelza sitting on you know those little ponies that you used Shetland to get, yeah, yeah, that you used to go on when you were a kid on pony rides. That's what I'm picturing in my head, and the thought of seeing Aiden and Eleanor attempting to ride these little things just—it <laughs> just makes me want to cry. It makes me want to cry. Three. Hmm? Can you pick out a passage that strikes you as particularly profound or interesting? Please share it and why. Okay, so BPAC67 picked <clears throat> the discussion between Ross and Demelza about the war in France and evil. Uh, she has not included all of the discussion, just the, per- the pertinent part. 
This passage clearly has its roots in Winston Graham's experiences and observations living during World War II, although he was a teenager during World War I. Unfortunately, the passage is still relevant today. But I still don't know where the evil comes from that makes men be stole to others like you have told, and her one of his own folk. I shall never understand it, Ross. He put his hand up to her neck and moved his fingers where the wisps of black hair curled. Perhaps it is because you have so little evil in yourself. No, no, I don't think so. That is not what I meant at all. I do not believe ordinary men have this evil. Perhaps it is like a fever that blows in the air, like cholera, like the plague. It blows in the air and settles on men, or, or a town, or a nation, and everyone in it, or nearly everyone, falls a victim. He kissed her. It is as good an explanation as any I know. That was my favorite mm. section. And when I was like picking one out, <laughs> I was like, oh shit, it's taken. It's so beautiful. Yeah, really so beautiful. Uh, yeah, and what? I personally picked a favorite passage. And even though I'm not like um, 100% fan of the Drake Morwenna's relationship, I was particularly um, moved by um, a passage by Morwenna. Uh, so, which is the following. So, <clears throat> to receive a young man and sit with him, unknown to her elders, was compromising to her position and her honor. Were he never so eligible? But what she was experiencing in these encounters were fiercely uncompromising emotions, which she could hardly begin to control. Was married to a man she did not even like, a giving of her body in a manner she did not altogether understand, a sharing of unthinkable intimacy. Was that right, because money and position were suitable, and her elders had arranged it? Was marriage to, or at least love, for a clean-limbed, upright, good-living young workman wrong, because of the lack of money and the barrier of position and education? Was love wrong, this sort of love, this headache-rich, six-sweet encounter? Did it have to be stopped forever? Yeah, that is... That just it just breaks my heart because you see the you see the struggle that she is having with the the situation that is placed in front of her uh, that she is supposed to acquiesce and uh, marry this man who she really dis dislikes. I mean, she she actively dislikes him uh, and. All because this is something that uh, the people that are in control of her life, and that, that there's no other word for it, they, they really are in control of her life, uh, have planned it and are basically guilt-tripping her into agreeing to. Uh, it's, it just it sickens me. Uh, it just sickens me. And, and it's um, something that I know I, I mentioned a little bit uh, further on, uh, when we, we get to the, the next question, uh, I have really strong feelings about, um, Elizabeth's lack of, yeah, uh, when it comes to the, the situation with Morwenna, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, I know for me, uh, when Ross was thinking about his reasons for going to France, uh, we probably have some of the deepest insight uh, we've seen about him and the decisions that he makes. You know, and it is, of course, more secret keeping that he is so good at doing. Uh, this is from 
Yeah, this is from uh, Book 3, Chapter 1, uh, page 365, uh, Kindle edition. First was his heavy obligation to Dwight. That was the primary, that was primary to the decision. But secondary and not to be overlooked was a barely conscious hankering within himself for danger and adventure and the company of men. At home, at the home he was just approaching, he had a wife whose gammon beauty, wit, and earthiness he still found totally engaging. And he had a son of four years old, good-looking, sharp with incentive, and already filled, full of the most endearing characteristics. And he had a daughter of seven months, dark-haired and dark-eyed like her mother, plump and laughing, and content at being born. All this he put at risk. A chance musket ball could have a broken widow and two fatherless children and himself written off the page, no longer able to draw breath and life and savor. Yet, although he could not quite work out, quite work this out in simple terms in his own mind, the very savor of life, he thought, was itself enhanced if it were not totally taken for granted. Perhaps it was something to do with the whole philosophy of the world into which we were born. If we lived forever, who would look forward eagerly to tomorrow? If there was no darkness, would we so appreciate the sun? Warmth after cold, food after hunger, thirst, drink after thirst, sexual love after the absence of sexual love, the fatherly greeting after being away, the comfort and dryness of home after a ride in the rain, the warmth and peace and security of one's fireside, after being among enemies. Unless there were contrast, there might be satiety. He did not suppose these were original thoughts, but they constituted an element in his decision to go. He knew how quickly Demelza would demolish them if he put them, if they were put to her. Accepting the first premise, no doubt, she would then go on to point out the fallacy of all the rest. Love is brief. Sun is brief. Warmth and peace and sexual and parental happiness last but a few years. Few possess them as we now possess them, so savor while we can. They'll go quick enough without inviting the French musket ball to heighten the flavor. It was practical, and if it came to the argument, he would admit she was right. But it would never come to the argument, for he would never reveal to her the secondary motivations for his decision. On loyalty to Dwight, she would have no answer. And I just, I thought that that was just a, a brilliant piece of writing uh, and a glimpse into Ross's character that, you know, we may have had thoughts and suppositions about, but, you know, now it's, it's spoken and set in stone that this is, this is part of, part of who he is. He is a man who, who relishes uh, the thought of, of danger and adventure um, at the core of his being, and uh, it oftentimes drives him to make decisions that prove to be not great ones. You know, Carmore, Carmore Comp Copper Company is a perfect example. You know, this is this is adventure. This is intrigue. This is uh, amongst a company of men doing something. Uh, you know, to to push against the 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 tide of what was happening in business at that time. And it's the, the same thing. It just doesn't involve musket balls. But, uh, you know, we all know what winds up happening as a result.
yes, so fourth question. What are some of the parallels, parallels in behavior decision-making that you've noticed happening in this book? And Deepak67 um, said, Drake's behavior and decision-making is guided by his heart, not his head, like Demelza's. Mm -hmm. Ross's behavior and decision-making is guided by loyalty to his friends and family and mm -hmm. his liking for risk-taking, buying the horse from Thali to help him out, going to friends to find out about Dwight's whereabouts, seeing Aunt Agatha at Trinwith and threatening George's servants if they don't look after her, Morwenna's behavior decision-making increasingly being guided by feelings and emotions over logic and expectations. Mm-hmm. Let's see, I think for me, and I, I mentioned it a few moments ago, uh, it's one of the things that really makes me want to smack Elizabeth upside the head, uh, especially when it comes to Morwenna, is that she's being exactly like her own damn mother was to her. Uh, you know, she I honestly think she enjoys following George's instructions because it means she doesn't have to make any decisions for herself. Compare that to Ross and Demelza's relationship. You know, he is seeking out her opinion on so many things, you know, with the exception of the whole danger thing. Um, and he depend he depends upon hearing her point of view to help with his decision making in most cases. And it all comes down to security. You know, George is at his core so utterly insecure about who he is as a man, a person withstanding in the community that he must turn to threats and throwing money at situations in order to have what he envisions as people's respect. It's fear and intimidation. Meanwhile, Ross has people's respect because he, of his confidence and the fact that he's earned it. I, uh, what is the storyline that you are... Well, what is the storyline that has held your attention and why? Okay, so All Roads Lead to the Kitchen said <clears throat> that it's still the forbidden love between Drake and Morwenna, and the forbidden friendship between Drake and Jeffrey Charles, I think it's held my attention because of the of the risk factor, but waiting to see if they are discovered, but also, I truly like these characters, and I'm rooting for all of them. Yeah, BPAC67 says the progression of Morwenna and Drake's relationship, and, and whether Morwenna can thwart this arranged marriage to Osborne Whitworth. Also, the glimpses into Ross and Demelza's marriage. Next question. Is there anything in the story that has bothered you, and why? I'm basically just waving my hand at everything that George has done, and is doing, uh, especially when it comes to Morwenna. Uh, <clears throat> his anger at her meetings with Drake uh, having a tiny bit to do with his own physical attraction for the girl. Uh, fuck you, you miserable piece of shit, George will let me. I know. Okay, I'm slightly scared. <laughs> Unpopular opinion time. No, it's okay. <laughs> we like unpopular opinions. Oh, I'm starting to remember why I hated the Drake more in a relationship now. <gasps> I know, I know, everybody loves them. I find it incredibly melodramatic and overwrought. And a lot of the time, I am cringing listening to the audiobook. It's somehow worse in the audiobook because I can't just speed through it. He gets really into character and <laughs> it's so dramatic. I'm just like waiting for it to be over. I, I find the complete lack of self-awareness or humor in their interaction makes them seem like some kind of CW TV show approximation of forbidden love. <laughs> like, honestly, just loathing it right now. Oh. Um, 
it's so overwrought and um I would skip their scenes if not for the book club because I've already read them and rereading them just like reminds me of stuff that's coming and it's going to get even more dramatic. Um, I actually much prefer Morwenna and Drake in scenes when they're not interacting. I think Morwenna, especially when she's in scenes amongst the gentry, like at the ball Mm -hmm. in uh, Truro, she's a lot more shrewd in those situations Mm -hmm. and I find her intelligence sort of diminishes around boys Mm. she just becomes sort of i don't want to say spineless but that's kind of the word i'm leaning towards (laughs) all of her principles sort of just vanished and she becomes this complete girly moron where she's like oh you're touching my hand oh the romance of it all and it's like this is a terrible situation just ask him politely to stop I don't get it. Like, I don't get... I don't get it. It's not tugging at my emotions the way that it probably is a lot of other people. I'm reading this and I'm going, I don't see this. <laughs> okay. Completely weird. It's totally okay. It's yeah. totally okay for, for you to have those feelings. You know, it is... You know, I think that that they they try to include uh, moments where Jeffrey Charles is interacting with them as as that lightness, that humor that you mention is is lacking when it's just the two of them. Um, you know, for, yeah. for, for Jeffrey Charles was, to provide I was that enjoying light. Enjoying the uh, early earlier scenes for that reason, I think. Yeah, like, yeah. He hurt his leg, and suddenly I was like, "No, I'm not here <laughs> for this anymore." <laughs> Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I I, yeah. you know, I and I, I I yeah I yeah I hear you, I hear you. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. Don't be sorry. Okay. I was bothered it, by um by Elizabeth because uh, like you said, Michelle, like she um she uh, endured the same thing with her mother. So mm-hmm. why? Sh- why wouldn't she like uh, trying to step up for her? For her, is she her cousin? Yeah, her cousin. Yeah. Well, yeah. Why yeah, wouldn't cousin. she like step up for her cousin? Like family, she's supposed to, you know, like love family. So you know that she lived the same thing. So why wouldn't you like step up for a for a family member who you know is gonna live live the exact same thing as you, like? Girl. I will say that I, I quite liked being in Elizabeth's head for that moment because I think it had it been from Morwenna's perspective it would have come across even colder but knowing that Elizabeth didn't want to be saying those things and that she was sort of forced to do it like George basically goes like I'm not talking to her about it you have to talk to her about it and by the way the guy's showing up tomorrow so you have to tell her tonight so Elizabeth sort of put in this impossible situation where she's breaking this news to this girl that she she didn't make the situation. Um, she definitely handles it terribly. Yeah. <laughs> but I also kind of see that she's sort of her hand was forced a little bit. George was a complete dick about it. Well, sure, but um, you know, she could have said, you know, I you know yeah. I I don't think this is the 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 best thing to have happen. I don't think that she necessarily even sees it that way. I think she just doesn't want the responsibility. 
It's not that she thinks it's a bad match. I don't think she's ever like, this is a terrible person for her. I will say what's really strange, um, and we haven't talked about it, is that Odges isn't, is like described as fairly hot. <laughs> and the casting. Yeah! Felt the man. I was really confused. Um, well, well, yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying. There was actually um, a line in the book i i can't remember if it is uh later on like if it's uh in chapters four and five uh but there is a, a moment where ross describes uh osborne whitworth as uh you know like a calls him like a pigeon and mm. when i i had a chance to look at the the teaser trailer that they gave us at the end of uh episode Pigeon to like? ten, <laughs> and he looks like a pigeon. Ah. <laughs> Fair enough. He looks like a pigeon. Um, I feel like he looks older though than he's only supposed to be thirty three. Yeah. So I was like, because I feel like um, I don't know about because I'm not familiar with the language later on, but in in these chapters, a couple of different people said he was like young mm-hmm. and um attractive and i was just like really confused because yeah, in my head he's always been old and grace um <laughs> yeah i i i you know when i think about what they or how they wound up casting that part you know there's nothing in me you know all apologies to the actor who was playing him but sorry I, there is i am not seeing where he could ever be considered attractive um, um he is well he's definitely not my type we all know who my type is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, not it, enough hair. It would, it, yeah, not enough hair, and yeah, and, and, no, I uh, know. Yeah, we know, we know. Um, but I am going to uh, the IMDb to look up the cat, uh, the guy that they cast, because I cannot He's probably remember. attractive in real life. I can't you remember know. who he is. Uh, Christian Brassington. Oh wow! I, I want to see uh, another picture of him. Oh, he's quite attractive. He is cute. What? Sort of. <laughs> okay. What? He, he is kind of cute. Yeah. He's kind of yeah, adorable. Oh my god, he's so straight. Wait, there's a photo of him in the hat and the. Yeah. They've definitely put prosthetics on him or something. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Yeah, he is quite young. Okay, I'll give them that. I'm in my head he was a lot older and grosser. Yeah. But he is he is possible for the period, I guess. Yeah. I I'm not, my I'm, statements. I'm not seeing him as being very attractive, but he uh, he, he probably In real life he's he's attractive. Yeah, he, he yeah. could be considered uh, in the period, but as a yeah, is he's cute. He's a little cute pie. I want to pinch his cheeks. Yeah, that's like the actor who plays a Blaney. Like in the show, he's like, man, mm-hmm. but in real life, just mm-hmm. <laughs> all that makeup and mm-hmm. shit. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, all right. Okay. So, question seven: um, Are the three? What are the three scenes you hope Team Poldark has captured for series three? So, all roads lead to the kitchen said that she would like Drake, Morwenna, and Jeffrey Charles' introduction and all mm-hmm. of their meetings thereafter. 
there are there are after. And uh, number two, the kitchen scene with Demelza and Caroline. Oh my god, mm. that scene! <laughs> yeah, they don't they don't do it? I will be very mad. Yes. And number three, the frogs and Todd's scene. Yes, right. Todd's yes. scene. Yeah, yeah. I really want to um, see that. I really want to see that. Uh, BPAC67 says Ross and Demelza's discussion about the French war and evil. That would be really great. Yeah. Uh, Folly's visit to Demelza. Uh, Jeffrey Ch- George Tor- and Jeffrey Charles' reactions to the toads in the pool. <laughs> oh my god, yes. Oh my god. And, and we've got to have Agatha in there as well, just cackling over the, the return of the frogs too. Um, and then uh, Jeffrey Charles when he tells Drake that Moetta is to be wed. Yeah, I think that would be a really great one to, to be able to see kind of the transformation of, of Drake's, you know, entire life in that moment. My three scenes are the entire chapter that involved the pregnancy reveal. Oh of my course, god, yes. Judd drunk and yelling at Clarence's christening <laughs> um, because it's so funny. And Clarence! He, um, it's so good. Um... George is bartering over Moana's dowry because it's brutal. Yeah. But also, sort of strangely entertaining the way George is like, "Bitch, I'm not paying six thousand pounds." Exactly. <laughs> Who do you think she is? Um, it's sort of gross but interesting. Yeah. And I think like Jack Farthing would kill those scenes. Oh my god! Yes. He's so good at being gross. He's he's gonna chew up scenery next next season. He He's really is. So many good scenes. Yeah. Next. Mm-hmm. As oh, much as much George as I is really great this book. Yeah, as much as I loathe George in in this book, Jack Farthing he must be just licking his chops. But uh, it's almost like better role than Ross next season. Mm-hmm. Like Christ. So we are going to wrap up uh, the Black Moon in two weeks. So finish reading uh, book three, chapters four through thirteen. And we will get the final questions for our explanation into Winston's fifth book up onto the blog very soon. So be on the lookout for an announcement, poldartpodcast.tumblr.com, in a few hours. And sadly, this podcast has come to an end. Thank you to everyone who got in contact with us this week. You're all awesome, and we really appreciate you taking the time out to contribute. If you want to get in touch, you can do it at all the usual places via the blog, at the ask box at poldarkpodcast.tumblr.com or tweet us at poldarkpodcast because we love it when you do. We are taking a small break and we will be back in two weeks discussing episode six of season one and the last few chapters of The Black Moon for the book club. So have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.